0: 1 Corinthians 15, if you have your Bible, let me invite you to be finding your place there, the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians. On Easter Sunday, three weeks ago, I began preaching from this passage of Scripture. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15 deals with the subject of the resurrection, both the resurrection of Christ and the majority of the chapter deals with the doctrine of the resurrection and how because Christ has been risen, uh, how there's going to be a future resurrection for those who are in Jesus Christ. And so the doctrine of the resurrection is what's dealt with in this chapter. It's a doctrine that is fundamental to New Testament Christianity. Now, the truth of the resurrection was being attacked by some in the city of Corinth uh, who denied bodily resurrection simply because it was unpopular with the leading Greek philosophy of the day. Uh, The city of Corinth was a Greek city, and so much of the thinking of that Greek city was uh, saturated with Greek philosophy. Well, when Paul came to Corinth preaching the gospel and the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the church was planted there. There were believers who came to faith in Christ, And so Paul is writing back to the church after some time. He spent about a year and a half there in the city of Corinth. But in this letter, 1 Corinthians, he has to deal with a number of issues. Issues related to belief, issues related to behavior, and it's a corrective letter. And in 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul is correcting their thinking as far as the truth of the resurrection is concerned. Evidently there were some who had been troubled by these philosophers in Corinth who had denied the truth of bodily resurrection. And so Paul is making his case for the resurrection in this chapter. And it's the most extensive treatment anywhere on the subject of resurrection that you find anywhere in the Bible. Now you know that belief in the resurrection is necessary for salvation. The Bible says in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, and we believe in our heart that God has raised him from the dead, we will be saved. So you can confess with your mouth, you can profess with your mouth that you serve Jesus, that you know Jesus, but if you don't believe in your heart that he is raised from the dead, you will not be saved. And so, again, belief in the heart that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he is uh, risen. This is absolutely fundamental to salvation. And yet, it's this truth of resurrection that gives us confidence, especially in this world of chaos and sheer hopelessness. Uh, I came across an article this week, I think it was from the Kaiser Foundation, but it was a study that basically pointed out how this past year, uh, mental health has been a real issue in the wake of the pandemic and all of that. But I found some of their statistics interesting. This article said that during the pandemic, roughly four in 10 adults in the United States have reported symptoms of anxiety or severe depression, a share that's been largely consistent which is up from one in 10 adults who reported these symptoms from January to June in 2019. So it's interesting. They they mentioned several of those uh, who explained the negative impact on their mental health. They have difficulty sleeping, eating. Uh, There's been increase as far as substance abuse is concerned and all of that. Now, we understand that, Uh, Someone else who's written about this recently is Tim Keller. Tim Keller uh, released a book recently called Hope in Times of Fear. But in the first chapter of that book, he makes this observation. He said, even before COVID-19 and its aftermath, the Western world had been experiencing what he calls a growing crisis of hope. For at least two centuries, Western societies had been animated by this powerful hope that history was progressing, that the human race was moving inevitably toward creating a world of greater and greater safety, prosperity, and freedom. He says, in short, there was a strong belief that overall, every generation of human beings would experience a better world than the previous generation. He then says, well, the 20th century happened and much of that way of thinking changed throughout the Western world. And Surveys even show now that pessimism about the future for our children and the future of society has only deepened. He says there's a growing divide that reveals a culture in which there is now a vacated center, a loss of any shared idea of common public good. And let me tell you what all this has done, it's left us with this profound loss of trust that seems to be undermining the the institutions that have held our society together here in the West. And so someone comes along and asks this question, is there any hope in difficult times? Is there anything solid that you can sink your teeth into? If so, where can you find it? And you know what? As believers, we know that the Bible answers that question for us. It's Peter who says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So this truth of resurrection, both Christ's resurrection and future resurrection of all of those who are in Christ, this is something that gives God's people hope especially in difficult times. And so that's what the Apostle Paul wants the Corinthian church to know as he's writing here in this chapter. And so in this chapter he assures them that resurrection hope is something that's guaranteed. It's guaranteed by the resurrection of Jesus himself. So if you've got your Bible there, 1 Corinthians 15 verse number 20. I wanna visit this text once more. We began looking at verses 20 through 28 last week and I wanna look at those verses again this morning. Verse 20, Paul writes and says, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says, all things are put in subjection, and he's quoting from Psalm 8 here, uh, it's plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. So in these verses, the Apostle Paul is driving home this point of resurrection guarantee. I wanna speak from that subject once more. Resurrection for the believer is guaranteed because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So in this passage I've already pointed out one of at least three uh, uh, things that I wanna emphasize. The first thing I mentioned last week was a theological argument that the Apostle Paul is making here uh, beginning with verse number 20. And so the theological argument is this, because Christ has been raised, there will be a future resurrection for those who are in Christ. And so you'll you'll notice there through verse 22 that there's an important distinction being made between those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ. And so Paul is summarizing this, this truth of federal headship He says there in verse 22 as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Who is it that's made alive in Christ? Those who are in Christ. Who are those who are in Christ? Those who've repented of their sins and believed the gospel. Those who've come to faith in Christ. And so the Apostle Paul is showing these Corinthians how death is a reality in man's fallen world because it's a direct consequence of Adam's disobedience. It was Adam who plunged the entire human race into sin and death. And the dominion that God gave Adam was forfeited through Adam's disobedience and now because of the curse of sin, Adam's nature has been passed down to each of his descendants. And every single person who's born, they've been born in Adam. Uh, you don't s- somehow fall into Adam at some point in your life. You're in Adam just simply because you're descended of Adam. You're a human being. That means you come into this world with Adam's nature. And, uh, We've raised our kids. You know that you didn't have to teach your kids how to disobey you. It was just something inherent within their nature. When you told them no and you experienced that first little bit of defiance, there was something within them that defied your clear command not to do something. Why is that? Did they have to learn that? No. Just kind of comes natural because they're in Adam. And the older we get, the more we perfect our sin, right? Right? We come up with excuses for it and we try to justify it and all such as that. But to be an Adam is to be a member of a fallen race. And so the experience of sin, that's something all of us understand. We look around at the world. Man's world is broken. There's something deep down within us that tells us certain things just simply shouldn't be this way. Death is a consequence of sin. We lose those that we love. There's something deep down within us that says it shouldn't be this way. The extent of sin, how far reaching has Adam's sin been? Listen to me, every single part of the human faculties have been affected by sin. Uh, theology knows this, this is the doctrine of total depravity. Man is totally depraved. That doesn't mean that every single person is as bad as they possibly can be all of the time. It just simply means that every part of a person has been affected by sin in some way. Our thinking has been affected by sin. The way we act, our behavior is affected by sin. The way we process that, all of that's been affected by sin. Adam's sin has had far-reaching effects. And what are the effects of sin? Spiritually, man is dead and he's in need of resurrection. Paul makes this point in Ephesians chapter two, verse one. He said, you were dead in your sins and your trespasses. To be in Adam means that you are spiritually dead. You remember when Adam sinned against God, the consequence of his sin God told him in the day that you eat the fruit that I've told you not to eat you're going to die now physically Adam went on to live several hundred years after that he did die physically but you see the moment that Adam died uh, the moment that Adam sinned against God there was a spiritual death that happened and when God comes looking for Adam what does Adam do after he sinned against God he's running from God And that's the default position of humanity. Humanity runs from the truth. Humanity runs from God. There's an an alienation now between man and his creator that's been brought on by Adam's sin. And so that's why the hope for every single person, no matter who that person is, their, their only hope is to be reconciled to their creator. And folks, that's why Christ has come. That's the purpose of the gospel. That's the mission of the church. The mission of the church means that we're to declare this message of reconciliation, the gospel, that God in Christ is reconciling sinful men and women to himself. And so in Adam all die, but in Christ, Paul says, all shall be made alive. That's true in the physical sense You have future resurrection to look forward to. God has a plan for the body. Just as Christ was given a glorified resurrection body, so also will every believer be given a glorified resurrection body. But you know something? You're not waiting to experience eternal life when you die. The moment you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you get in on his life. His life gets into you. He puts his spirit in you. And so again, going back to Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says, you who were dead in trespasses and sins, has he made alive? I think it's the King James translates it this way. You who were dead in your trespasses and sins, hath he quickened? He's given life to. So to be in Jesus Christ is to be alive. And so spiritually, the person who comes to faith in Jesus Christ, that person is made alive. So this is the theological argument then that Paul's making. Now, there's a second thing. Let me move on to a second thing, and it's this. Notice the chronological sequence that's involved. There's a chronological sequence as far as the resurrection is concerned. After dealing with that uh, the theology of it in a concise way. You you look at verse 23, in Christ all shall be made alive, but Paul says, but each in his own order. So there's a chronology, there's a sequence, there's an order to the resurrection. That's the point that Paul's making in these verses. And so what he's describing then is the redemptive plan of God that's taken all the way to its future consummation and how critical the resurrection is to it all. Through the finished work of Jesus Christ, God has redeemed a people for himself and all that has been lost in Adam will be restored through Christ and it involves a process. That word order used there in verse 23 uh, translates a Greek term uh, that speaks of arrangement. It was a military term that described uh, the orderliness of the troop. You ever seen military troops in formation? Have you seen them all marching in sequence? Command is given, those commands are carried out. There's an orderliness to it all. That's the word that Paul's using there in verse 23. Which by the way, nothing that our God does is chaotic. You know, our God is never in reactive mode. Redemption is not a plan that God put in motion after he scratched his head and thought, I can't believe that Adam sinned. No, the Bible says that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who's been slain from the foundation of the world, meaning that it was the plan of God all along. That means there's nothing in your life that will ever happen to you that will take God by surprise. That may take you by surprise, but you can have confidence in the fact that it didn't take God by surprise. That's why we know that all things are working together for the good of them that love God and those who are called according to his, pro- his, his promise, his purpose. So it's the, the providence of God. The providential plan of God sees to it that Christ is slain from the foundation of the world. So God is a God of order. Uh, When it comes to the resurrection and the restoration of all things, notice it doesn't take place all at once, but there's a sequence. And that's what Paul is describing here in these verses. What is the order of the resurrection? Well, to begin with, it involves the resurrection of Christ. That's what happens first. The first important event is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. In his death, the Lord Jesus Christ paid the penalty for sin. The debt has been paid. That's why I know that my sin has been forgiven because Jesus Christ paid the debt for me through his own death on the cross. And now in his resurrection, he has reversed the effects of sin. And again, we know the consequence of Adam's sin. It's death for Adam's race. In Adam, all die. But the result of Christ's obedience is endless life for those who are united to him in faith. The last part of Romans 4, uh, Paul says that we're justified by his life. In Jesus Christ shall all be made alive. Those who are in Christ, listen you've got something to look forward to. No matter how ugly the world around you may get, no matter what circumstances may scream to you any given day, you've got something to look forward to. You have hope. And that hope is just as sure as the empty tomb of the Lord Jesus. So Paul is saying that Christ's resurrection is of primary importance. Without it, death would be final. The grave would be absolute. And it's Christ's own resurrection that guarantees the resurrection of those who are united to him in faith. Now, I want you to see a key word here in these verses. It's the word firstfruits. It's used at least twice. It's used in verse 20. It's also used in verse 23. What's the Apostle Paul referring to when he says that Christ is the firstfruits of those who've fallen asleep? Well, he's using the word to refer to a yearly observance that was specific to the nation of Israel, and it was outlined in Leviticus chapter 23. So the first fruits were the very first elements of a crop to be harvested. And so the first fruits served as a sign of a sure harvest that was to follow. Now, pay close attention to that. You go back to the Old Testament, and again, you go to Leviticus 23, you know that there were seven annual feasts that God gave to the Jews according to Old Testament law. Seven feasts. Again, our God is a God of order. So much of his orderliness, it's seen in, in the, the, the commands that he gave to Old Testament Israel. Uh, the way that there was an annual reminder of God's grace and God's provision. Uh, God's plan of redemption, all of that was driven home through these yearly annual feasts. And there were seven of those. And by the way, the number seven is an important number all throughout the Old Testament. There are seven feasts. Three of those feasts are in the seventh month of the Jewish year. The Sabbath is the seventh day of the week. Pentecost was seven weeks after the Feast of First Fruits. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Tabernacles, both of those feasts lasted seven days. So there's a pattern. There's an orderliness to all of it. And that Hebrew word for seven, it comes from a root word that means to be full, satisfied. It's this idea of completion. In fact, the word is closely related to a word that means to swear or to make an oath. I like what Warren Wiersbe says about it. He says that whenever God sevens something, you'd better pay close attention to it because he's reminding his people that what he says and what he does is complete and dependable. And that's not true of everybody that we know, right? You know, there's some people, they, they, they give you their word, but because you know their character, you know their word is not very dependable. But folks, let me tell you, when our God gives you his word on something, he's going to see it through. When God makes a promise, he's always going to honor that promise. And so, again, you see this through the use of that number seven. So what were those seven feasts that were to be yearly observed by the nation of Israel? Well, to begin with, there was the Passover. The Passover was the annual feast of deliverance that the Jews were instructed to commemorate. Read about it, Exodus chapter 12. When God brought his people out of Egypt, you know how he did it. It involved families taking an innocent lamb and that lamb died in the place of the firstborn. The blood of that lamb was then applied to the doorpost of the home by faith and a house was spared judgment wherever the blood was seen. The death angel passed over the Jewish home where the blood had been applied to the doorpost. That was immediately followed up by the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That's the second feast. So for seven days, immediately following the Passover, the Jews were to eat only unleavened bread. Uh, They were told to remove all of the leaven or the yeast from their homes. And you know why? Because leaven is a picture of sin. And so the putting away of leaven, this illustrated the cleansing of one's life after he's been saved through faith in the death of a substitutionary sacrifice on his behalf. Which, by the way, the blood precedes the unleavened bread. You understand that? They're not spared judgment simply because they put the leaven out of their homes. No, they're spared judgment because the blood had been applied. And in response to that, They're to cleanse their homes from all leaven, which is a picture of sin, it's a picture of obedience. It's a picture of the righteousness of Christ that's credited to the believer's account. That's followed up by a third feast, the feast of first fruits, which Paul is referencing here in 1 Corinthians 15. The day after the Sabbath that followed the Passover. That was the first day of the week, and since it was spring of the year, the priest would take a sheaf of barley from the field, he would go into the temple and he would wave that sheaf before the Lord. And it was a token sign of the first of a coming harvest that belonged to God. The first fruits belonged to God. And this was done before the people could ever reap any of the harvest for themselves. In that way, it was God's people showing their dependence upon God, their gratitude for all that God had provided for his people. And so, all of those feasts, those three feasts are celebrated just one right after the other. You've got Passover, that's immediately followed by the seven day feast of unleavened bread. However, the day after the Sabbath, after the Passover, the first day of the week was the Feast of First Fruits. Now, you fast forward seven weeks from the Feast of First Fruits, and that brings you to another feast, a fourth feast called the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost. Uh, it was celebrated seven full weeks after the first fruits had been offered. Like first fruits, it was also offered on the first day of the week. But instead of the priest waving a sheaf of barley before the Lord in the temple, uh, at Pentecost, the, the priest would wave two loaves of leavened bread, baked bread with leaven. And so, in order to have loaves, the grain had to be ground into flour. The flour baked into those loaves, and it was all symbolic. Now, I'm gonna tell you something in just a minute, but just stay with me. All right, there's a four-month gap between the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost and the next feast. The fifth feast would be the Feast of Trumpets. The last three feasts were all held in the seventh month of the year. So, again, this was held on the first day of the seventh month, the Feast of Trumpets, what it meant, trumpets were blown by the priests to assemble the people together, the people gathered together, and it marked a new beginning because the Feast of Trumpets um, ushered in the new civil year, Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish new year. Yeah, that's the Feast of Trumpets. All right, you fast forward nine days after the Feast of Trumpets, and you have what's known as Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement, Uh, The tenth day of the seventh month, the people were told to fast, to afflict their souls, to confess their sins, because on the day of atonement, the high priest went into the Holy of Holies to sprinkle the blood of a sacrificial animal on the mercy seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And so in that way, he acted as a representative on behalf of the people as atonement was made. And of all of the feasts, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, was the most solemn of feasts. Well, that's followed up several days later by the Feast of Tabernacles, which is the last feast, the seventh feast. By the way, suffering always precedes joy. And the Feast of Tabernacles was the most joyful of all of these Old Testament feasts. The Feast of Tabernacles was to be a reminder to Israel of God's faithfulness in the past. God had led them out of bondage. God had provided for them in the wilderness. God had brought them into the land of their inheritance. They had lived in makeshift dwellings, tents in the past, but now they would live in permanent dwellings now that they were settled in the land. And so the Feast of Tabernacles was joyful because it was a yearly observance that reminded the people of God's desire to tabernacle with his people. So you've got these seven feasts and all, by the way, did you know that all of these feasts in some way foreshadowed some important aspect of Christ's redemptive work? When you consider the chronology of events in the death and resurrection of Jesus, you remember that he was crucified on Passover. Laid in Joseph's tomb as the Feast of Unleavened Bread began, And he was resurrected on the first day of the week, the very same morning that the first fruits were being presented by the priest there in the temple. And that's what the Apostle Paul is saying here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Your hope is sure because the first fruits have been offered to God. Jesus Christ and his empty tomb is proof that the people of God have something to look forward to. There will be a future harvest and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, has assured this to be the case. Y'all, let me tell you, our God's in perfect control. Regardless of how you may feel, regardless of what circumstance may tell you, God is in perfect control. Jesus used this same imagery when he referred to his own death and resurrection. John chapter 12, he said, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So through his own death and resurrection, his burial, uh, Jesus was like a kernel of grain placed in the earth. And you know that when something is planted, it soon bursts forth in new life that bears the seed of bearing fruit of that new life. And that's why every single time we as believers bury those that we love, whom we know have died in the Lord. Let me tell you, all we're doing is just planting a seed in the ground. Because you know that there's going to be a great getting up mourning for the people of God. And one of these days, the dead in Christ are going to rise. And it's something that's sure, just as sure as Christ's own resurrection is sure. So, what's the sequence? The first important event chronologically is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That leaves us asking a question what about us? When will we receive our glorified bodies? Well, again, you look at what Paul goes on to say in verse 23, and he says it's at the return of Christ. So the second part of this chronological sequence as we're on our way to resurrection involves the return of Christ. Paul says, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, and then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, So Christ is the first fruits. He's the first to receive a glorified resurrection body. Now let me tell you something. When you think about resurrection body, I'll say more about this later on because Paul deals with what the resurrection body will be like later in chapter 15. But when you consider the resurrection body of the Lord Jesus Christ, it was a glorified body. A body not subject to the limitations that these bodies are subject to. A body that's not subject to the process of aging and decay like these bodies are. And every time you start feeling the aches and the pains, living out your days in this body one day that's going to be planted in the earth, just remind yourself, you know what? I've got resurrection to look forward to. So the answer to the question, when will we, we receive those glorified bodies? It's right there in the verse, verse 23. It's at the second coming of Jesus Christ. When Jesus comes again, those who are his will be given a body just like his. That's how someone says, well, what does that mean for the believer who's died in the Lord? Well, you know, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So the loved ones that, that have passed from this life into the next, we know that they're safe in the arms of God. They're with the Lord Jesus Christ. Because for a believer to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And yet, the Bible says that when Christ comes again, it's the dead in Christ who will be the first to receive their resurrection body. And then Paul even says this later on in the chapter, that there's a generation of believers who are going to be alive when the Lord returns. The dead in Christ will rise first, and then we which are alive and remain will be caught up. Rapture. We too will receive our glorified resurrection bodies. The Apostle John says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, he says, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. So again, you go back to Acts chapter one, you know, Jesus is ascended into heaven to be at the Father's right hand. The disciples are stargazing. They're they're struck with what they've just seen. And there's an angel that appears and says, You men of Galilee, why in the world are you standing staring into the heavens? This same Jesus, who you saw go into heaven, he's going to come back the same way that you saw him go into heaven. And at the return of Jesus Christ, the dead in Christ are going to rise, and believers are going to be given their resurrection body. And won't that be amazing? Again, you go back to the Old Testament. Go back to those feasts. Seven weeks after first fruits there was Pentecost. That points to the church, how the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, it was born at Pentecost. The Holy Spirit came to indwell the church at Pentecost. And just as the priest there on Pentecost was in the temple offering those two loaves of baked leavened bread before God, what's that symbolic of? Listen, the fact that the church is made up of both Jew and Gentile. And why was it leavened bread? Because the church ain't perfect, but the church is being perfected. Right? And so after Pentecost, there's this long gap before the next feasts, which would be in the fall. And some could even say that the gap between the feast of Pentecost and the next feast on Israel's calendar is picturesque of this age in which we currently live. But what was the very next feast after Pentecost on Israel's calendar? Trumpets. Trumpets. And it's the feast of trumpets that points to the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and the gathering together of the people of God. And this is the exact same point that the Apostle Paul makes in 1 Thessalonians chapter number 4 when he says, we don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you may sorrow as others who have no hope. He says, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep for this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Now listen to this. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of what? The trumpet of God. Amen. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. And then Paul says, wherefore comfort one another with these words. Encourage one another with these words. Build each other up as the body of Christ with these words. You go to social media, all you see is doom and gloom. And you turn on the news, all you hear is doom and gloom and protest here and protest there and strife and division here and strife and division there. Where is it that I can go to get some comfort for my soul? Paul says, let me tell you, encourage one another as the people of God with the truth of resurrection, with the truth of the return of Jesus. So the sequence, it's resurrection of Christ, the return of Christ, and then third, the reign of Christ. The reign of Christ. I don't have a whole lot more time to say much about this, but again, go back to verse 23. Each in his own order, you have Christ the first fruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ, they'll receive their resurrection bodies. Verse 24, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule, every authority and power for he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. What's going to happen after Christ comes again when the dead in Christ shall rise and receive their resurrection bodies after believers receive their resurrection bodies Jesus Christ is coming back to the earth not to take sides but to take over and he's going to establish his rule upon the earth. He's going to establish his kingdom upon the earth and we're going to rule and we're going to reign with him in that kingdom for 1,000 years upon the earth. And it's in the millennial kingdom of Christ that the dominion that Adam had forfeited through his own sin and disobedience, Jesus Christ has recovered that dominion. And as the son of man, he's going to rule over every square inch of this universe. And he's going to get right what Adam got wrong. Now, does that mean that Jesus is not reigning now? No, he is reigning now. And his kingdom now, his kingdom rule now is in the hearts of his people. That's why when we pray the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom come, we're praying that the kingdom rule of Christ would be established in the hearts of people. You know what the answer is for man's world? that man bow the knee to the king, that people be saved, that the kingdom rule of our God be established in the hearts of people. Now, folks, that's the mission that we've been given as the church. Our mission is not to just simply hold services, to preach sermons and to sing songs and to have classes for this and classes for that and to start ministries for this and start ministries for that. All of those are simply means to an end. What is the end? The end is the glory of God. We want to see the rule of God established in the hearts and lives of people. The hope for our city is... Jesus Christ enthroned in the hearts of every man, woman, boy, and girl in our city. But the day is coming when Christ is going to return, and physically, his kingdom is going to be established upon the earth, and that's what Paul is referencing here. And then here's a big word, but cosmologically, what does that word mean? The end result. When it's all said and done, after the millennial reign of Jesus Christ and Christ gives the kingdom to the Father, and we enter the eternal state. What will the end result of all of that be? It will be a a creation completely free from any trace of sin and rebellion and disobedience. And the last enemy, Paul says, to be destroyed is death itself. You want to know what that's like? Read Revelation chapter 20. When after the millennial reign of Christ, even death itself is going to be cast into the lake of fire. So let me ask you this question again. Do you have hope? Yes. Do you have hope? Let let me ask you this question a little bit more specific. Do you have hope no matter what the economy does? Do you have hope no matter the outcome of elections? Do you have hope no matter what happens and comes your listen, you know what? Your hope is greater than a vaccine. You listening to me? You need greater hope than a vaccine could ever provide. You need resurrection hope. And in Jesus, you've got it. Let's stand and let's pray this morning. I'm so grateful for the truth of the gospel. If I had to boil all this down to just one simple takeaway by way of application for you, it would simply be this. When you're tempted to cave in to despair over circumstances, when the pain of your present afflictions seem to be unbearable, lift up your head Your redemption draweth nigh. We have hope. And that hope transcends circumstance. If you don't know Jesus this morning, let me just encourage you to turn from your sin and place your faith and trust in him alone. And those who come to faith in Jesus Christ, they are secure in Christ. Lord, thank you for the truth of your word this morning. God, may the truth of this word just wash over us. Build up our faith. Strengthen our witness. Give us rock-solid hope and confidence in the face of a world of unbelief. Lord, I know that under the sound of my voice, there's some men and women here in this room this morning who have been walking through some deep, dark valleys. But Lord, thank you for the hope that we have in Jesus. And Lord, as the church, I pray that we take this message of hope and we declare it to the nations. Our world desperately needs this hope. There is good news to declare, and Lord, may we shout it from the mountaintops. So Lord, we make our prayer this morning in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.